Well, today we continue our series, Inside Out. The voices in your head control the story of your life. And one of those uh, voices that has sabotaged many lives, perhaps even your life, is sadness. And Pixar's Inside Out, here's what sadness looks like. Ever wonder why you feel the way you do? Well, get to know your emotions. When life gets you down, that's when sadness takes over. This is sadness. With a caring touch and a kind heart, sadness leaps into action to let you... I said sadness leaps into action. Sadness? Oh, sadness. Get to know all your emotions with Inside Out. So, does sadness always have to end bad? Well, it was late into the evening on June the 18th, 2013. There were 28 seconds remaining in game six of the NBA Finals between the Spurs and LeBron James Miami Heat. Talk about sad, it hurts even today. You remember the Spurs were up uh, 94 to 89, five point lead, victory looked certain. League officials had already brought out the yellow tape to cordon off the floor in in preparation for the trophy presentation. Champagne had actually already been delivered to the Spurs locker room. But over the next 28 seconds of game time, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. A sure victory was snatched away by a tying three-pointer by the Heat's Ray Allen and subsequent win by the Heat in overtime. After losing this epic seven-game series, you probably heard him say several times, Coach Greb Popovich admitted that he thought about game six every day. It, It was so close. The championship was so close. The loss haunted him. In fact, the whole city was sad. And even though it's just a game of grown men making millions of dollars, bouncing a ball, there's one inescapable reality. Loss makes you sad. In fact, sadness is defined as an emotional pain directly associated with loss. And we all experience loss. But what happens? What happens when your loss is more serious than being on the short end of the score of a basketball game? What if your loss is in a relationship, maybe in your marriage? That's very sad. What if your loss is financial? You're no longer as stable as you once were. sad. Or or an unexpected loss of a loved one. Or losing something you anticipated or expected or wanted very badly. What if you have lost status? Or someone else got the promotion you work for. It's a loss. What about the loss of a much-wanted pregnancy? Or you've heard the doctor's dreaded words. It's cancer and you're losing your health. Loss, it's sad. Sadness is an understandable and God-given emotion. But sadness can also turn toxic, and it often does. It can dominate our minds and become an unhealthy voice in our heads, leading us to undesirable actions. Like being so sad, you just overeat or don't eat at all, or being so sad that you self-medicate or make poor decisions, or there's 
anxiety and depression and tainted viewpoints. Loss makes you sad. It's a dilemma because it is an unavoidable experience. But does sadness have to lead to an unhealthy, destructive, and tragic action? Whenever you are sad, does it always have to end bad? Well, it, uh, it ended very badly for a woman in the Bible named Michael. Now, don't get confused about this because Michael's typically a male name, but Michael, M-I-C-H-A-L, Michael, when her loss turned an understandable sadness toxic. Now, here's what happened. You're going to have to to really stay with me here because there's five people you need to know about. Several of them, if you hadn't read the Bible a lot, you may not recognize these names. So you're going to have to stay with me, okay? Yes? All right, here we go. Saul who was the first king in Israel, had a daughter. Her name was Michael. She was born, obviously, into the lap of luxury and royalty and privilege. She was the king's daughter. Saul betrothed his daughter, Michael, to his successor. His name was David. Michael would go from her father's palace and eventually to David's palace. I mean, talk about a great life. Now, the scripture notes that even though it was an arranged marriage that was common in that day, even though it was arranged marriage, Saul's daughter, Michael, had fallen in love with David. And Saul realized it. He realized how much his daughter loved David. Now, the Bible rarely mentions love in this, in, in this kind of way. Uh, In those days, there were arranged marriages so that you learned to love the person you married. You didn't necessarily get to marry the person you loved. Do you follow that? And that's how it was in that day. But in Michael's case, she actually got to marry the person she had fallen in love with. And she had it all. She was rich, servants, the best clothes, the best food, a palace, unlimited shopping, sex with the most revered and respected warrior in the nation who was soon to be king. She was the envy of every woman. But it is interesting that the Bible is silent about David's affection for her. Trouble was brewing in Michael's fairy tale story. So let's move on. David and Michael's father, Saul, had a falling out. David's on the run when he and his men crossed paths with a wealthy countryman named Nabal. There's the fourth character, Nabal. Nabal was Trump rich. He had a lot. So David and his men, they were on the run. They needed some help. They asked for some some food. But Nabal also had a flawed character. The Bible says Nabal was crude and mean in all of his dealings. So Nabal refused to help David and his men. But then the scripture goes on to say, but Nabal's wife, there's the fifth person, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. The word sensible in the Hebrew language, the language of the Old Testament is the word tob. It means intelligent and very smart. The word beautiful, sekel, in the Hebrew means best or better. And in this context, it's like better looking, clearly better looking than anyone else. Well, even though Nabal refused to help David and his men, 
his sharp, hot wife, who was better looking than the rest, ransom interference so that David and his men would not harm her greedy, mean-spirited husband for not being helpful. Scripture says she and David had this lengthy conversation. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm guessing sparks were flying between those two. Not a good thing. They were both married to other people. Still with me? A short time later, Nabal actually dies of natural causes. And immediately, David proposed marriage to Abigail, even though he is still married to Michael. It was not unusual for a king in that day to have more than one wife, but Abigail, clearly smarter and more beautiful than Michael, accepts David's proposal. Okay, let's stop right there for a moment. I just wonder what was going on inside Michael's head. Her inner narrative, the voices in her head, What were they saying to her now that her husband was pursuing another woman? So let's do a quick review. Michael's experience, we all have experiences. Michael's experience, uh, though it was common for a king to have more than one wife in that day, it was. But now her experience is what she had to deal with was she had to share the man she loved. It was also possible confirmation that her love for David was never really reciprocated. There was loss of happiness, loss of prestige, loss of the perfect life. Michael lost her fairy tale, and we know what loss does. Loss makes us sad. Well, the Bible doesn't detail what the voices in Michael's head were saying. But back in those primitive days, women did the most unusual, odd thing. They compared themselves to each other. It was a primitive society, of course. Wonder if Michael was comparing. Abigail looks better than me. She's smarter than me. She's a 10. I'm a 7.5. She doesn't need any makeup. David never looks at me the way he looks at her. Michael's inner narrative, the voices in her head, began to slowly turn her experiences, most of which she could do nothing about, but began to turn those experiences even more, of loss even more toxic, tragic. And remember, Clayton taught us that our actions, how we actually act are not directly tethered to our experiences, but there's something in between. The voices in our heads interpreting those experiences. Sadness interpreting the experiences of our life. And here's what makes this a sad ending in Michael's case. One day after David had become king, Uh, He rescued the Ark of the Covenant from a town called Philistia and brought it back to Jerusalem. And there was this huge celebration. This would be, it'd really be like a victory parade after a Spurs championship. In fact, I've been to a Spurs victory parade and 
Hundreds of thousands line the river walk and celebrate and shout and holler and everyone's excited. Everyone is happy. Everyone is on their feet. Well, the return of the ark was like that. It was a great, great victory. And there was a parade. And the Bible says that the parade was led by King David himself. The Bible says he danced a crazy dance. One translation says he twirled about in ecstatic glee. But watch this. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city, Michael looked down from her window. And and when she saw King David leaping and dancing in front of the servant girls, she was filled with contempt for him. Contempt. Bazaar is the actual Hebrew word there, and its root means to esteem. But the form of this word negates the root meaning. You know what all that means is? It means to disesteem. So at first, David was the love of Michael's life, highly esteemed. He was at the top. Now, in her eyes, he is at the bottom, despised, hated, contempt, disesteemed. Michael was not in a good place. Her inner narrative, the voices in her head coming from this sadness, had her emotionally trapped in a dungeon of jealousy and bitterness. She was filled with contempt. It was understandable, but it was was pushing her in a very dangerous direction. This normal sadness had turned toxic, and she could no longer be happy for the man that she had always loved with all of her heart. So when sadness turns toxic, It overpowers thoughts and feelings that are good, and it distorts reality. It inflames negative emotions. It causes you to think wrongly and will turn your already difficult circumstances even more tragic. So Michael was filled filled with contempt, not because of the king's dancing, but because the voices in her head were telling her again, You do not measure up, not even to those servant girls. And there is no way those voices would allow her to be happy for the king's victory. The voices in Michael's head were controlling the story of her life. And get this, she was miserable. And friends, she was the only one that was miserable. And it gets worse. The king's reaction to Michael's contempt, it was not good. Sad really turned bad. The last thing that we hear about Michael in scripture is this sad epilogue. So Michael remained childless throughout her entire life. I don't pass by that too quickly because what this means is that David refused to sleep with her And it robbed her of motherhood, a sign of disgrace in that day. David knew that. He did that to her. One commentator deemed this saga the saddest story in the Bible. Here's why. Michael's experiences were out of her control. They were. Much of her experiences she could do nothing about. We don't blame her for that. But her tragic end was not a result of her experiences, but a result of resentful actions prompted by her inner narrative, the voices in her head. So we ask this question. 
What could Michael have done differently? We understand her dilemma. We, we can identify with it. But could she have done something different? Would have been hard, but could she? What can you do differently if the voices in your head are steering you toward a tragic ending? Does sad always have to end bad? Well, there are three questions that Clayton taught us to ask that will help us take control of our inner narrative and live from the inside out instead of being controlled by the circumstances and experiences of our lives. And if you have not seen it yet, I, I wanna ask you to do this. I want you to go to city.church slash inside out and watch the first week of this series. Clayton breaks it down for us beautifully there. These three questions were directly asked by God in scripture and, it will, and they will help us take control of our inner narrative. The first question is, where are you? When you have an experience that hurts you, whether you caused it or whether it was done to you like Michael, it is often difficult for us to admit it, to face it, and to call it what it is. In fact, sometimes we minimize our experiences or we excuse them or we rationalize or we justify. Where are you? That means what's the truth? What's reality? You can imagine how hard it was for Michael to admit, the love of my life does not love me. He has chosen someone else, and it hurts, and it does hurt. You know, the first step in any kind of recovery is to answer God's question, where are you? Define your reality. Hey, my name is David, my name is Sam, my name is Sally, I'm an alcoholic. To define reality, to get honest about what's going on in your life. See, God already knows anyway. The question's not for God, it's to help us name and clearly identify where we are. Where are you? Second question, who told you? Michael, who told you to compare yourself in the first place? Who told you you were not good enough for those servant girls or for Abigail? God did not tell you that. I would say to some of you, who told you? Who told you that you are not smart enough? Who told you you're not good enough? Who told you you'll never amount to anything? Who told you things will always be bad? Who told you you'll never succeed? Who told you to fear trying before you even get started? Who told you you've sinned so badly God can't forgive you? Who told you you'll never be loved? Who told you everyone is against you? Who told you because God did not tell you those things? You can take control of your inner narrative by replacing the voices in your head with the truth of scripture. You can take control of your inner narrative by recognizing those voices in your head are taking normal emotions and distorting them. Friends, here's the truth. You are a child of Almighty God, and nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing can separate you. You are forgiven. God is for you. He has a plan for your life. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross as a payment for your sins and my sins, the Bible says He overcame death, hell, and the grave. And that's why the Apostle Paul declared to the world, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what God says about you. It's the truth. Where are you? Define your reality. Who told you? Last question, what have you done? Michael, 
What did you do? What were your actions as a result of the inner narrative, that sadness, and the voices in your head? Were you passive aggressive after David married Abigail? It's understandable, we get it, but did you do that? Did your contempt for David rear its ugly head in conversations? Did you decide if you could not be happy, you would make sure no one else would be happy in that household as well? What have you done? Friends, if you've allowed your inner narrative to take over and you realize what you have done is steering you to a tragic end, it is not too late. Friends, it's not too late. God can forgive you. You can hit a reset button. It is not too late for you. But you're going to have to get a different inner narrative. The question now becomes for you, not just what have you done, but now what will you do? You see, Michael lived out the rest of her life controlled by sadness, and you don't have to. Where are you? Face your reality. Who told you? Let God's truth inform your inner narrative. What will you do? What new action will you take? I hope you will let City Church help you learn things and take new action with a myriad of programs that we have designed here to serve you. But don't let the voices in your head control the story of your life. Loss makes you sad. But can sad ever become glad? Well, after the, after the Spurs' devastating loss in game six, championship 2013, as I said earlier, Pop admitted he thought about that loss every day for a year. He was sad, the players were sad, the whole city was sad. National sports media wondered if the Spurs would even recover. Well, Pop, where are you? He defined reality. We lost, let's face it. Who told you? Pop took control of those inner, uh, those inner voices of defeat when on the first day of training camp the next year, he had the whole team watch game six again, and then he declared, we will not dwell on this again. It will not define us. What will you do? The Spurs never looked back. They met the same LeBron James Miami Heat team in the finals the next year, and they destroyed them with one of the most dominating performances in NBA history, and they became world champions. The voices in your head will control the story of your life Unless, unless you learn to live from the inside out, where are you? Who told you? What have you done? And what will you do? Let's pray. So God, this is a hard one. Because all kinds of voices in our heads, controlling the story of our lives, and we ask for your help. Help to define reality. Help to exchange those inner voices with the truth from you. And then to know the next right thing to do, the next right steps. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. In a few moments when we dismiss, our prayer team's going to be here down front to serve you. Maybe you need to talk to someone about what are those next right steps. 
Several things we're start, we are offering now, uh, you can find out about at the Burgundy Pavilion or out in the plaza, opportunities for growth in certain areas. So be sure and take advantage of that. And next week, we're going to look at disgust. Will I see you here? Thank you very much. Y'all have a great day.